All right, listeners, welcome to another episode of Emo Over Easy. It's ASAP week uh, for us. Woo-hoo. So uh, Tanner and Drew here. Andy is uh, traveling back from, I believe it's Chile, from a Medutopia uh, conference. There's some great pictures on the interwebs and Twitter. I'm showing. Sure. So sorry for him. Yeah, we feel really bad. Although we are in sunny, beautiful San Diego uh, right now, and we have two awesome guests talking about a uh, very important topic for medicine, for people, for society in general. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves and and why we're going to be talking about uh, suicide and uh, specifically suicidal thoughts with physicians. Thanks. Um, It's great to be here. I love uh, listening to EM over easy. And I'm Lois Swisher. I'm from Philadelphia. I work in the community. I'm a nocturnist for the last 21 years, soon to change. Uh, and I'm also associated with the Drexel Residency Program. And this subject became really important to me in January 2016 when uh, Chris Doty wrote to the cordless serve about one of his second-year residents who died by suicide um, related to a sick family member. And when I read that letter, I thought that I really connected with that story since I had a sick daughter, she had a malignant brain tumor, and I went down that path, and I felt that we didn't talk about it enough. And so for the last two and a half years, I've been involved in this. And my name is Raman Tabatabai. I am currently the program director at LA County USC, and I have been in the residency office for the past six years. Uh, but actually, my interest in this started a few years before that. It was my first year out of residency. This is something that really wasn't ever on my radar until a year after residency. A close friend and colleague of mine, Tony, uh, was uh, struggling with with a lot of things during re- residency, sort of unbeknownst to uh, pretty much the entire program or any of his colleagues. And one year after residency, he sort of reached out to a bunch of us to uh, meet up and hang out. And none of us actually could during that week. Um, and one week later, uh, they found Tony's bag on the Golden Gate Bridge. And Tony was nowhere to be found. And he had killed himself. And uh, none of us were any way, shape, or form prepared uh, to, to hear that news. Shortly thereafter, uh, I did join the residency office at LA County USC, and um, it obviously was something that was in my mind as I was looking at the residency experience um, and just the physician experience in general about what what was missed and what was going on that could have uh, could have helped someone like Tony and could have helped a lot of other people um, in similar shoes as him. So. Wow. Uh, I mean, we're only a couple minutes in and I, I can already feel my heart racing because this is an extremely deep and emotional topic. And f- for you guys, how, how do you even start the conversation with something like this? Like, you know, just to talk to people about something so powerful and so sometimes incredibly sad that this is even a, a thing we have to discuss. How, how do you start that conversation? I think a lot of us didn't start the conversation for a long time. You know, it wasn't until three years after Tony's death that I, I began to, to think about it, cry about it, talk about it um, with other people. And um, I know Lois, it took, took you probably a lot longer to get to a point where you were. Yeah, I think for me and talking about my own feelings, at that time um, I was in, in the small community of the pediatric brain tumors uh, parents. And I think there it felt very safe that 
there would be some mention of it. Uh, but we were all going through a tough time, and we sort of all looked out for each other. But when we got out of that sort of safe community into the general population and how people were going to respond, it was safer to not talk about it mm-hmm. because you didn't want to make a bad situation worse. And if you said something, maybe the other person would be anxious or would call the police or wouldn't talk to you again. So I think at first we didn't talk. And then um, once we started talking, once you got past that initial point, it became a lot easier. I think we found that in Cord in uh, Tennessee in 2016, that when the subject was introduced, people would then start telling their own stories. And if you take the first person who breaks the ice, the next person will say, you know, something like that happened to me. And I think the more individuals that say, hey, I had a hard time in residency, or I had a hard time with my family, and I thought about suicide, or somebody that I knew uh, died by suicide, that that opens the conversation. I think 2016 seems to be the year that a lot of things turned. Um, one, uh, Chris Doughty was incredibly open about an event in University of Kentucky. Certainly not the first time something like this happened, but maybe the timing was right, that there was an event, but there was also a social media movement in emergency medicine that made it a public process for us to all go through. The court picked this up uh, very quickly, and in large part, I think, because of conversations that you both were having. Uh, and now, just uh, what, two weeks ago, we had an awareness day through CORD for all of emergency medicine, really physicians in general, about suicide awareness, and it's taken off from there. Certainly, I think everyone has a, a personal story, some more personal than others, and certainly both of yours are incredibly personal. When we think about applying this to medicine and our colleagues and ourselves, our residents, as, as we're all working with residents in some way or another, how does this work? How do we make sure that we're not just talking about it, that we're actually doing something about it, that we're building a safer place, that we're opening opening ourselves up and our programs up and our colleagues up to knowing that this is something we can address? Well, I think what we're doing right now is a, is a great step. I think for so long, this has been such a taboo topic, right? Like talking about your own mental health or your own sort of thoughts and struggles uh, in medicine wasn't something that was really well accepted. And I think we're becoming honest with ourselves and we're not bullshitting ourselves that um, a lot of us have had, you know, struggles in, in medicine. And I think the first step is this culture change where from faculty level attendings to residents to medical students, we're able to openly discuss that this is a thing. This isn't just something that affects like a couple people out there. You know, this is this is a real thing that's prevalent. I think that is the very first step, just acknowledging acknowledging its existence. And like Chris Doty said in his letter, uh, we must speak its name. When you said the year, I uh, think about how long physicians have been killing themselves more than the general population. And it's a lot longer than you think. It's not just electronic medical records and metrics. There's a study out of England in 1858 or paper out of England in 1858, which showed physicians killed themselves more than the general population. So there's something about being a doctor that weighs on the heart and soul of us. And I can't say whether it's the 
difficult and bad things we see or making decisions that turn out to be life or death for patients or whether it's what takes us away from the family, now malpractice stresses. There could be a lot of things, but there's something about being a physician that's tough. And it's been that way for a long time. And 2016 was a big year for emergency medicine to make this on the front burner. But it's been longer than that in the modern age. Uh, 2010, there was a fellow Greg Feldman, he had come from Stanford, finished his surgery fellowship, uh, surgery residency in Stanford, went to fellowship in Chicago, and four months into that fellowship, he killed himself. And he was, from all accounts, the stars were the limit for how far he could go. And that changed the Stanford program. And then 2014, two interns went off buildings in August in New York City. And that really galvanized the social media um, community. More emphasis was placed on making awareness. And I think having the internet and being able to communicate that way made more people able to talk about it. And then 2016 was our sort of awakening in emergency medicine. I think it's like catching a wave. Because people are able to talk so easily um, through social media and through Twitter, and to write blog articles, I think that we're able to tell our own personal story more. I think it's so important that um, for the number of suicides that we hear about, like somebody actually completed their suicide, how many more people actually have thoughts? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the place where we have such an um, important opportunity to be able to talk and reach people that are having thoughts. I had no idea. In the first year that I was, um, or the second year I was in the residency office, our institution started sending out uh, surveys, these PHQ-9 surveys, where one of the questions is whether you've had any um, thoughts of suicide in the past couple of weeks. And we screened positive for um, just about 10, 10%, I think four out of our, the 40 that had, right? That is absolutely and, crazy. And I thought, my God, this, this is a complete anomaly. What are we, what are we doing wrong? And we brought this to Christine Murier, who's the, um, CMO for the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention. She said, no, that's, that's right about what we're seeing with medical students and, and, uh, residents that, um, you get to a point where the, the, you know, the stressors in your life and in your work sort of overwhelm your ability to want to cope. And, uh, that ending, ending your life seems like one, one of the options to, to get there. And I think once we acknowledge, gosh, yeah, this, this is prevalent. This is real. And this is happening. Um, not to one person that we know this is happening to a lot of people, uh, th that we have uh, the opportunity to kind of collaborate and share our experiences. And I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that are in, uh, that are phenomenal physicians, phenomenal human beings that I look at. I'm like, there is no way you've ever struggled in your life. And they've had that very struggle. Sure. I don't think there's anyone. I, I, no, there's someone in medicine that's going to tell us that they they haven't had some type of struggle with depression with with thoughts of something, whether it's truly suicidal thoughts or something else. But I I, I would have to say they're probably a liar. I mean, we carry so much weight on our shoulders. Our job is uh, incredibly stressful that that you can't help but have moments in your career through training or through practice that that weight doesn't become overbearing in some way, and that doesn't you know, depression, 
drinking too much, social issues at home. I, it's all on a spectrum. Uh, I, so I think it touches I, everybody. I almost bought a cat once. <laughs> That's a big deal. I, for most people who know me, I don't like cats, but I wanted something close, something that I could look forward to coming home to. And the cat was easier than a dog. So I just figured a cat would be a good idea. And that was actually, I mean, not that it was a major episode, like what you guys were talking about, but it was enough that I was like, Whoa, this is strange. So I, it, in jest, but also in seriousness, like those are like little things that, you know, I think, I think you guys are hundred percent right that this is much more prevalent than we're letting on to. I wonder what's your take on our practice in emergency medicine specifically? Cause I think we see such a dichotomy, right? I, I, there's not a day that goes by on a shift in the emergency department that I don't take care of somebody that comes to the ED because of suicidal ideations. And I will say when I started my training, I found those patients at times to be annoying to, you know, why, why another one? Why are we bringing them straight back into a room? Why are we bumping them ahead of a chest pain or abdominal pain or, or just why, you know, why at three in the morning? Um, I, I have changed, I think in part because of the conversation that's been going on over the past couple of years uh, to approaching these patients differently. And, even thanking them for coming to the emergency department, you know, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for letting me help you get help. But how does that affect us as providers and certainly people that are prone and our co-providers, our residents that are prone to having suicidal thoughts, having struggles with depression? How does taking care of these same patients, do you think, affect them and affect our, our job? That's interesting um, because most of the time I think about this particular topic, I'm really talking about um, my colleagues. And that goes beyond uh, my co-faculty or my residents. That's also the nurses, uh, the techs, the healthcare workers. But I do think things have changed for me in dealing with patients. And I think that that's important for us in emergency medicine, because we pride ourselves in being able to take care of all emergencies. And you could argue suicide Suicidal ideation is the biggest emotional, psychological emergency out there. And I think we, as emergency physicians, should have this as part of our wheelhouse. We should say, this is, this is our thing. Um, it's not just the psychiatrists. And that we could make a big difference with the public if we talk about it being overwhelmed, being stressed, some people having a disease of depression rather than it being a crazy type of thing and crazy thoughts. If you can say, we understand this is a big deal because you've been overwhelmed in some way of your coping, we can make a difference. And one of the ways that we can make a difference, I like the whole thing about thanking people that they came in, that you don't make them a burden because... Right. When you look at, there's a theory called Joyner's Theory of Suicide. There's three parts. One is having the capability, having the means and the knowledge. For physicians, we have that. Not going to be able to take that away. Then there's two other parts. One is a sense of isolation and how you prevent isolation and suggesting to people that they have people to contact, whether that's the person sitting right beside you, working with you, or whether that's your patient. And it's why a cat could be a good idea. It's not a crazy thing to have a cat's a, never a good idea. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> coming from two dog people, just to be clear. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I just offended all cat people. That was an evil reason. There's only like two of those. Okay, in the world, so, so it could be a cat 
Or a dog. Or a dog. There we go. A pet. <laughs> a, a bird, yes. <laughs> Snakes aren't really co- lovable in co- uh, company. Probably, but, you know, if that's your thing, okay. Whatever works. So there's the capacity, there's the isolation, and then there's this sense of burdensomeness on people. And so that thank you part, um, if you make somebody feel like they're a burden by coming to the emergency department, that just plays further down the line. So I think that we can help people by creating other ways of thinking. You don't have to go down the suicidal ideation pathway. You people have free choice of what they are going to think about. And a lot of times when you're in that pathway, you just keep thinking about the same thing and the same thing and the same thing. And if somebody breaks that and says, well, you could do something else. You could write music. You could play a guitar. You could read a novel. You could binge watch some TV show. Uh, you could go running. They give them options. And there's also a way to do safety planning. I oftentimes call it crisis management planning. And you can put in your phone. There's apps. The one that I like is out of the military virtual hope box, but there's other ones uh, beyond blue where you can put in thoughts of how you, if you get this thinking, who you can call. I The uh, virtual hope box has pictures that randomly rotate and I put in my pictures of my family. It doesn't have to be suicidal ideation. When I have a big argument with a patient who's demanding something that I can't give them like 120 Percocet and security ends up being called. Sometimes I just have to reset my mind and I take my, go into the bedroom, take out my phone and have 10 pictures randomly rotate. I don't know what's going to come up. I'm like, yeah, I remember when we were in Florida. That was the time we were in Hawaii. And it just resets that thinking. The happy reset. Absolutely. Happy reset's a great thing. Absolutely. And we can do that for patients. Sure. Yeah. And I think we've, we, I've, I've certainly, in my personal line of work, moved from this dichotomous kind of evaluation of you're suicidal or you're not suicidal. And if you're suicidal, you're going to be on a 5150 and someone else is going to take care of you. And you know, what everybody sort of when they're going through that situation needs is, is to not, not be isolated and feel like somebody has their back. And I think the most important thing that we can do is rather than saying someone else will check you out, someone else will take care of you when someone's struggling like that, just being like in that position where you're there, Hey, we got your back, you know, I got your back. Like, talk to me. What's going on? Um, and we're going to try to help you in whichever way we can as a team. Uh, and the safety planning, like, geez, you talk about, I started doing this with, you know, we, we were with the residents, like, Hey, identify the person that it's not a matter of if, but when you're going to start struggling in residency, mm-hmm. identify that person you want to talk to. Let them know in the beginning, like, Hey, I'm about to go through this experience that. It's like a pre, pre-safety plan. That's right. Pre-safety. pre-safety. Identify those people because they don't want to, it's, it's always hard when you're in that bad place to call somebody out of the blue and be like, Hey, I know we haven't talked for a while, but, uh, I got something big. I got to talk. Nobody feels comfortable taking that, that leap necessarily. But if somebody is expecting and Lois, sometimes you, you talk about giving even a code word to the people that you're really close to that, Hey, if things aren't okay, um, like I'm going to say this to you and then. That means that's like my signal that it's, your, it's almost your time out where, yeah. where it's, it's yeah. the moment that the other person has to recognize it's time to stop. Right. And, and focus on the person, person reaching for help because it can be so hard and, and 
that's your story, right? That somebody was reaching out for help and, and there wasn't that moment to reset or there was a safety word or just recognizing yeah. how serious something was. Everybody's blindsided. So, you know. and, and, and I think we all, we all know of a situation like that in, yeah. in our lives. So you guys are kind of coming from this, from two different sides, someone who knew someone mm-hmm. and someone who went through it. How do we, those two perspectives I think are very unique to have you both here at the same time. What are ways that we can, that you experienced or you know now from what you've seen and done that you think would be beneficial for people to know how to identify someone that's struggling when they're not, they don't know yet. They haven't even processed themselves perhaps or, or something along those lines. I'm, I'm, I, I understand what you say, and yeah. I, I'm going to say a couple of things. But and the first one's going to sound really glib, but be careful of docs asking to go out for coffee or dinner or drinks with you, because that we are such non-disclosers that that is actually a reaching out. I've heard that so many times, where they just called a couple of days ago and asked if we could go out, and um, it sounds so benign that you do that a million times you hardly even think about it but it's one of those things if somebody's reaching out that's the time to say hey are you doing okay is there something i could do for you and then if if it's not that time you say let's make a different time or is there something you need to talk about if you open that door um the cha- it's like a double tap. It's like, are you okay? No, no, no. Are you really okay? <laughs> it gives them a chance to talk. I think that that's one of the really important things. We did come in a, at it a different perspective. And I think that after we had a lot of conversations, but the very first thing was I opening the door. It's not so scary. It doesn't mean somebody is going to be going off a bridge or, in my case, injecting insulin every time you talk about it. It doesn't make it worse. It actually makes it better. And to say, I'd like to listen to what you have to say. I have time to be there for you. Can I help you? That's all that's needed. Once you give the story, a lot of times the anxiety, the pain of what you're going through is lessened by having somebody else share that burden. So what's next? You guys have uh, an incredible article that you um, published a couple of weeks ago uh, through Cord, which we'll, we'll link in our we'll show notes. In notes yeah. um, you have an incredible description right before you go into talking about some ways of managing um, depression and suicidal thoughts where you actually describe suicidal thoughts as anemia, which I think is such a salient comparison. Um, and I, I never would have thought of that without thinking about you know, without it coming, being brought up to my attention. And it, it's so true that there's so many different ways it presents and so many different causes. But when we talk about ourselves as physicians, trying to increase wellness, um, a word that I, I find dirty in so many ways, and that's, we've talked about that in previous episodes, but really being well people and well providers, what, where, where does this movement that is gaining steam that you have been, uh, both of you have been so, so key in pushing forward and bringing to the forefront? Where do we go next in making sure that we as providers, our co-providers, our residents, our students continue on this path of wellness and identification so that we can, can intervene or seek intervention when it's, when it's needed? Well, I think that this is coming together as a more organized movement that so far individuals have taken up the cause, whether it's been, um, people in leadership 
lending their picture to the Be the One campaign or here at ASAP, there's going to be a movie called Do No Harm that's going to be shown and putting uh, the money in the spotlight on this. From the top, the people that are individuals sharing their stories, I think you're getting multi-level. And I think we're going to see more of that become an organized focus. And one of the things that I was really heartened by, the National Physician Suicide Awareness Day, which was September 17th this year, the uh, third Monday of September, was a big success. And we had about 40 different organizations lend their logo, not just emergency medicine, just not, not just medicine, not just the United States. We had um, the National Health Service from United Kingdom join in, but also a variety of suicide prevention organizations. So I think that link between medicine and the suicide community, suicide prevention community is going to become tighter. And if we're all in the same message, I think that's going to be a stronger voice in a public health crisis going on. And I think that we're going to see a more organized approach. And one of those things is just last week, the American Association of Suicidology has decided to have a physician suicide awareness working group so we can work together and have a common platform and a common voice on this. Yeah, I, I feel like in, even in the last few years, Lois, you and I have been talking about this, We've come so far on sort of the awareness front and the normalization front. Um, but where we still have a long ways to go is kind of overcoming all of the logistical barriers for sure. folks that are like, you know what? Yeah, I am having these thoughts. And maybe it is normal, but there is no freaking way in hell I am going to tell my supervisor or tell somebody that there, there's the confidentiality issues that we know are an issue. There are the licensing um, issues that we know are a problem um, for folks being able to disclose like, yeah, sure. Yeah, I've been to therapy. I've had this sure. issue. Am I going to actually tell you about it? I think those are, those are the, sort of the next big frontiers that, that because of everything that Lois has been mentioning, that the large groups and advocacy groups are going to be tackling these things. These are the real pragmatic barriers that physicians face when they want to come out and discuss that we got to really overcome some of those barriers before it becomes practical and wow. easy to do. I agree. The, the, the practical part is the key to this. I talk about the organizational stuff, but it's not going to be the policies that keep physicians or patients from killing themselves it's going to be the person that's sitting there right beside you mm. and the way we open the conversation it's been silenced for so long people just don't talk about it Raman and i have talked about this over the past couple years and it was always so shocking he's told me you've helped me so much and i'm like and i don't even know how telling my story because you're from the other side because from the one being suicidal you think you're the one being helped how you help somebody else by sharing that story was a whole different thing realizing that other people want to know your experience and say oh that's what it's like oh god you know how many times I walked into these conversations, I'm like, just don't say the wrong thing. Don't say the wrong thing. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't say this. Don't screw it up. And then it just took like over multiple conversations with Lois and so many other people saying like, look, the same way you just want people to have your back, have people's backs. Sure. And if you're that's just there, that's it. 
That's all you need Keep to it do. simple. Like, you just have each other's backs. Things will get better. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for coming here and sharing your story and your insights on probably what is going to be the most important topic we publish in a long time. <laughs> Maybe ever. Maybe ever. And, um, and it's really the most serious. Yeah, by far. And I, before we completely wrap up, though, here, I, I'm guessing after reading the articles that you've sent us and then listening to you talk here tonight, statistically, someone listening to this podcast might be having some thoughts. What would be your guys' message to them? That's a really powerful question to ask. And I think, for me, what I wanted to hear was I was not alone and somebody would listen to me. And I found that, for me, most people feel, if they think about it, there's somebody, even if it's scary, at first to open the subject to them, they will listen. And there's always somebody out there, even if it's the crisis hotline, there is somebody who really cares, even if they don't know you, they don't want another person to leave this earth by their own hand. And they want to make a difference. They will be there for you. Give those people a chance. And with my daughter, I said my daughter had this a serious malignant brain tumor, was devastated neurologically. She's 24 years old. She loves cats. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the only one. <laughs> and, um, is a great girl. She is uh, performing in the Hunnett House this October. If I would have known life could be like this now, I wouldn't have been like that then. Don't assume that you know the final answer because you don't, even if you think you do. And I was sure, I was absolutely sure as a doctor, I knew the final answer for my daughter. And I wasn't even close. I think that's got to be some of the best life advice that anyone can give you whether it's talking about this or something else is that we, we don't know the final answer. So have hope and, and find somebody to give you hope. That's, that's such a strong, strong way to end. Lois, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Um, you're in two incredible people talking about an incredibly difficult topic and the work that you are doing uh, undoubtedly is going to save lives um, in a way that we as physicians don't typically save lives. So thank you for what you're doing. <laughs> We are going to uh, have a, a host of uh, show notes for this because there's so many incredible resources that you've shared with us and that, that we use on a daily basis that people need to use. And um, we hope to continue this conversation with you both. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank really you so much. It.